This is On Being's Unheard Cuts. I'm Krista Tippett. You're listening to my unedited conversation with Dr. Stuart Brown. He is the founder of the National Institute for Play. I spoke with him on July 31st, 2007, from the studios of American Public Media in St. Paul, Minnesota. He was in the studios of public radio station KAZU in Monterey, California. Download the MP3 of our produced show with Stuart Brown at onbeing.org. I see people busily working behind the glass, so I'm hesitant to begin. Um, you know what? I think if you if you looked at our website or just heard a little bit, I think the shows we've just been on there um, not too long, but we do a wide variety of subjects. You know, I I like to say this is not a show about religion, but about life, and then asking you know certain kinds of questions um, of sure. different aspects of life and getting at some of these, you know, some of the really essential questions behind the religious endeavor, like what does it mean to be human and how can we illuminate that with all of our disciplines and faculties? So I think this is a great subject. And uh, frankly, right here at the end of July on this hot day in Minnesota, I can't, I think it's a perfect subject. Yeah, yeah. I do too. Too yeah. bad you're in the studio and not out swimming I know. In, the, in, in, in Minnetonka or the Mississippi River. Uh, well, I'll be out swimming after we finish here. Okay, Good. I just got a thumbs up. Um, and Good. where I'd like to start with you is where I start um, with every interview, whatever the subject is. I'd like to just hear a little bit about um, the spiritual background of your life. Um, and let's say, let's say your background um, spiritually as well as uh, your background of a person as a person who plays. Well, you know, I'm reasonably old, and I'm sorry we've only got 90 minutes. Uh, <laughs> I did I did see somewhere you made a reference to Midwestern Presbyterians, I believe speaking of your parents, and they're not famous for their playfulness. Well, I had a—they were Midwestern Pre- Presbyterians. I grew up in on the southwest side of Chicago, hmm. and uh, my mother was one of the— uh, Trustees of the Moody Bible Institute. Oh wow! My my, my father was an organic chemist, an inventive fellow, very playful. So I grew up in an atmosphere that had kind of free play and also religious overtones. Uh, I did uh, go to a parochial high school called Christian High, and then to Wheaton College. Mm-hmm. So I had a certain sense of deep belief, and uh, I reveled in that deep belief, uh, which was a, a certainly a part of my. Uh, religious background, and I would say my spiritual heritage. Mm-hmm. And uh, then I went off to medical school, and right. through uh, did you become a psychiatrist? You specialized. Well, what I did, what mm-hmm. I did, uh, Krista, was uh, I initial initially graduated from medical school, took a rotating general internship, and then did essentially family practice for three years. Okay. Liked it. Uh, wanted to sort of deepen my diagnostic skills, so I went back to the Midwest in your state, to the Mayo Clinic, and took a fellowship in internal medicine. And while I was doing that, the dean at Baylor, who I'd been a friend of uh, when I was a student, called me there to be uh, an assistant dean. And uh, when I got down there, a marvelous psychiatrist by the name of Sherbert Fraser was sure that my mental health would be improved if I took a residency in psychiatry, so okay. I, did, I, did, I did that. All right. So that, that's how I got to psychiatry, kind of a circuitous okay. route. And in your history, um, there is a, 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 a quite striking and surprising straight line, it seems, between um, your interest in play 
and an early study, psychiatric study, you became involved in in extreme violence. Um, that's tell me, cr- tell that's me cr- about that line. Well, that line, of course, opened play up to me in a in a very unexpected way. Uh, in 1966, when I was just beginning to uh, take over an office as a an assistant professor of psychiatry, a young man by the name of Charles Whitman uh, went up to the Texas Tower in Austin, Texas, after killing his wife and mother, and perpetrated what was then the largest mass murder in, in the history of the United States, uh, killing 17 additional people and wounding 41. And because I had done some studies of violence in the course of my residency in neurology and psychiatry, and because in August uh, in Texas most people who are important are elsewhere, uh, <laughs> I, was, I was put in uh, charge of the behavioral aspect of trying to figure out why Charles Whitman did this horrendous crime. And we had a, a, at our beck and call all the resources of the state of Texas that were being pressured by the then governor, John Connolly, who had been in the Kennedy motorcade, hmm. fearing at those that particular era, which was a this turbulent era. 1966, era in our I think, right? Right. Mm-hmm. Very turbulent time in, the, in our history that there were Charles Whitman's or, or Oswald's uh, on, on every corner. I see. So sparing no expense, uh, we brought in uh, the world's experts to try and figure out the motivation of Charles Whitman, even though he had been killed by vigilante crossfire at the top of the tower. Mm -hmm. And so for a very intense uh, period of time, in in addition to doing very detailed toxicologic and studies of his, his body, we uh, retrieved as much information as possible from his prenatal era all the way up till the last hours before he died. And without going through that entire story, mm-hmm. one of the major conclusions which struck me and has certainly stuck with me since was that a remarkably systematic suppression of any free play, which was largely the result of his father's overbearing an intense personality, prevented Charles Whitman from engaging in normal play at virtually any era of his life, including his early infancy, hmm. where one would expect uh, that even an overbearing, overbearing father would have allowed the mother and infant to have uh, enjoyed each other together, but he didn't. He, whenever he could, he stopped any kind of spontaneity between them. Now, did you then continue on and, and find that to be a factor in the lives of other um, violent individuals, homicidal individuals? Yes, I did. I, we thought at the end of the Whitman study that this was such a bizarre aberration in human behavior that it probably was not something one could generalize from. So uh, as a result of, uh, of the funding available and the availability of uh, research subjects in the prison system in Texas, uh, a team of us then studied all the young murderers whose crime was essentially homicide without their being career criminals. Uh, And we did an in-depth study of them, their families, and compared them to as well-matched a control and comparison population as we could. And lo and behold, we we discovered that the majority of them, in fact, 90% level, had really bizarre, absent, deficient, seriously deviant play histories. Now, it, 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 is that just 
one symptom among others of other kinds of abuse or neglect? Or, or did it seem to be a quality of these lives, lives sort of in and of itself well, I don't know that I can answer that question specifically because abuse was certainly a part of the homicidal population, mm-hmm. both Whitman and the, the young murderers we studied. But if you, if you sequentially sort of watch a life emerge and you look at what play offers from uh, early infancy uh, into adulthood, when uh, crucial experiences are missed the ability to regulate emotions and to uh, establish empathy and to um, live with trust with one's companions is definitely attenuated or definitely uh, constricted. So that from my standpoint, although there are other factors that are certainly certainly allow one to uh, have a a proclivity for violence, the play history and its aberrations or lack are have proven the test of time to be extremely important in uh, the life cycle of highly violent men at least let's talk about what you are what what you mean when you use the word play um you know when you when it's something that you associate so closely with words like empathy and trust you know what's your working mm-hmm. definition <laughs> go to the Ox- go to the Oxford Dictionary and you'll find at least fifty definitions. But uh, to start with, I'd say play is anything that spontaneously is done for its own sake, and uh, and then you, one can extend that in, into uh, more and more uh, detailed definitions, such as pur- appears purposeless, produces pleasure and joy, leads one to the next stage of mastery. Um, is in in terms of biology appears to be the product of what I call divinely superfluous neurons. There is is choice uh, in the player's life, and that choice, if given opportunities through the environment, emerges innately and spontaneously if the individual or animal, for that matter, that's capable of playing is safe and well-fed. You know, you you said appears purposeless, and I'm thinking of what difficulty some parts of our culture have with anything that appears purposeless. <laughs> so true. <laughs> I mean, we don't. We don't, I would. I, I probably would put myself in this category at certain points in my life. Something that appears purposeless would probably lead to anxiety rather than joy for me. <laughs> <laughs> well, I hope not. I hope uh, part of the uh, outcome of this uh, discussion with you and your audience is, is a little guilt-free purposelessness. Okay. <laughs> And, you know, and you mentioned animals, and it is very intriguing to look at the work you do with the National Institute for Play, but also how much you've been involved in the science of play, which encompasses both animals and human beings. When I use that phrase, the science of play, you know, what, what comes to mind for you? There's this whole world, this whole universe of, of a different kind of science that you have been immersed in that the rest of us probably don't even know about. Well, I think that's true, and I think that's uh, the science of play and having had a background in medicine and, and psychiatry and neurology primed me, I think, to see play behavior in its uh, evolutionary terms so that when I had the option uh, fairly late in my career of studying play in a broad sense, 
I started with the animals in in the wild and learned a huge amount about uh, sort of the the spectrum of play behavior in the animal world. I think I've I've looked at some um, projects you were involved in, a, an issue of National Geographic, some of the visuals um, on sites around your work, and there are these remarkable images of cheetahs and cranes and bears and mountain goats who seem clearly to be playing. Well, I think there's no doubt, uh, at least to us onlookers, that they're playing. And my guess is, uh, by all the measurements we can make on the animals, uh, they actually are playing. Mm-hmm. There's a, it's, a different, it's a different and definable state of being than any other. Mm-hmm. And to say some more about what the qualities of that state of being are. And what, and what well, do we I, know about it through science? Well, I think we know a lot about it uh, through the wonderful laboratory rat. Uh, If you are a reader of the New York Times, a recent article by Natalie Anger talked about uh, sort of the personality differences and how intricate rats are. But they have a very specific language of play which is measurable and which is like none other. They make a particular squeak that's inaudible to humans as a signal that they want to play. They then wrestle with each other and pin each other, particularly during their juvenile times. They engage in what uh, a number of investigators call hardwired rough-and-tumble play. And the outcome of that is uh, quite striking because if, they, if, if the laboratory investigator of play stops the rats specifically from playing, there are some dire consequences. They do not socialize normally. They can't recognize friend from foe. And there are other uh, very specific kinds of outcomes, which, to my way of thinking, to some degree match some of the uh, human outcomes. But, of course, they're in rat language, and mm-hmm. human outcomes are much more intricate. So so what is happening um, in play that enables it to have that effect on, I don't know, animal development or even human lives? What, what do we understand about this? Well, I don't think we understand enough because the cultural heritage we have is kind of like your guilt. Yeah, it is yeah. that play is, play is trivial. It's, it's for what you, what you do when your responsibilities are taken care of, particularly as an adult. So it hasn't had the funding or the close look that other elements of behavior that are important have had in a scientific sense. So if you, but if you were to follow, as I have uh, at least scholastically and if, if not clinically, if you were to follow the trail of play in both animals and humans, uh, the beginning point of tra- play in the mother-infant or parent-infant bonding process is kind of the spontaneous eruption of joy and pleasure upon the process of uh, being f- uh, safely fed And in the case of the human, when there is eye contact and uh, the social smile emerges in the infant and the mother begins to coo, Mm -hmm. and that's worldwide, and there is mutual joy, and the brain imaging that's associated with that shows an attunement between the mother's right cortex, the non-dominant hemisphere of the brain, and the baby's. And then if you build on that and say, okay, uh, the child has experienced that, now they're growing up a little bit, they get some of the same joyful experience from grabbing something, putting it in their mouths when they're infants, and then uh, a little later uh, playing with toys, and then ultimately parallel play with other children and on and on. I could go right Mm -hmm. on up through the whole life cycle, each of which 
uh, has more and more intricate, more complex play if the individual is sort of allowed through the environment to, uh, to take advantage of it, of that opportunity. I mean, here's a statement. This was from an interview you did with um, a scientist, Bob Fagan, who studies mammals mm-hmm. and birds, bears in particular. And you asked him about the play of bears. And, you know, one, one answer he gave you was they play because it's fun. And then you probed. And he, he said also, in a world continuously presenting unique challenges and ambiguity, play prepares them for an evolving planet. I mean, that's a huge idea. And I, I think you're, you know, you, you've said something similar about how play equips human beings uh, to live in the world. But can you just, can you explain that to me more? What, what is the connection well, between play and that kind of? Well, I think, again, this, the part of the reason that I pursued a brilliant uh, field scientist like Bob was mm-hmm. I was trying to figure out the same thing, same question you're asking, because even as a trained psychiatrist, I, and I didn't really, couldn't really figure out where it came from, why it's there. Yeah. But when you see animals and humans who are deprived of it, they are fixed and rigid in their responses to complex stimuli. They don't have a repertoire of choices that are as broad as their intelligence should allow them to have. And they don't seek out novelty and newness, which is part of an essential aspect of play both in animals and humans. Mm -hmm. So if you look at the human situation, at least for the last 200,000 years or so, our capacity as a species to adapt to whether we're in the Arctic or the tropics, the desert or a rainforest, appears to me to be related significantly to our capacity in, as, as developing creatures to play. And then if you look more closely at the human being, as Bob Fagan and I have done both through bears and uh, through looking at bears and analyzing the, the background of human, human and non-human primates, you find that the human being really is designed biologically to play throughout the life cycle. Hmm. And, the, and from my standpoint as a clinician, when one really doesn't play uh, at all or very little in adulthood, there are consequences, rigidities, depression, um, lack of adaptability, no irony, you know, th- mm-hmm. things that are pretty important uh, that enable us to cope in a world of many demands. That's kind of interesting because this, the last statement you made um, makes a lot of sense to me. You know, it sounds logical. I mean, in, in that last Good. statement, I suddenly think of adults I know who fall into both categories, and, and you're describing something that's kind of obvious, but that I haven't ever stopped to put words around. Well, it is obvious, but uh, there's, there are capacities for succeeding in our culture by being compulsive and kind of a grinder mm-hmm. uh, so you can get economic rewards. But those people that surround the grinder are generally not very happy, nor is the interior life of the grinder very happy. So, you know. Yeah. Let, let's talk about children for a minute, and then I do want to talk about adults. Um, but I, I, I'm interested in... Um, the fine line that I think perhaps is more apparent when you're studying animals or children between um, playing and fighting, or, mm-hmm. right? And right. So as the mother of a son, um, and, I, and I didn't have this experience with my daughter, but with my son, I, I do see how he has this rich fantasy life um, 
it's and it's often kind of playing with himself. Although there are all kinds of characters in the room who I can't see. <laughs> that's and, wonderful, right? That's, that's is it? Good. Is that's that good? good news? Okay, and but <laughs> but it, it's so I've named it what he does: saving the world, right? So uh-huh. when he says, "I need to go save the world," which is a really nice spin I've put on it, <laughs> but there's there's a certain violence, there's a combativeness to it, um, and apparently that's quite common as well. It's, it's universal if it's allowed to emerge. So what but is that about? A, yeah. Well, well let, me, let me sort of go on a riff about uh, rough-and-tumble play, okay. which, which occurs in children, both genders, but is a bit more obvious usually in boys. At about your, how old is your son? He's nine, and he's uh, been doing this for several years. Sure. Well, uh, if you were observe, to observe kids like in a, in a preschool that are, are involved with all the exuberance that preschool kids have age four, three, four, five, and you watch them at play, it's chaotic, anarchic, looks violent on the, to the surface. Mm-hmm. They're diving, they're hitting, they're squealing, they're screaming. But if you look at them, they're smiling at each other. <laughs> and they don't, it's not a, a contest of who's going to win. And, and most uh, well-meaning parents and a lot of, certainly a lot of preschool teachers put the lid on that. Because yeah. it's, you know, it's scary. It's a little it scary, scary for an yeah. adult because they don't remember it. And it almost always has pretense and real. It has violence and uh, fantasy. And it is the uh, borderland between uh, in- inside and outside and making sense of the world. It's a very important part of free play driven from within by the child's own personality and temperament and mixing with others. Now, you were surprised when I said things like empathy and trust earlier yeah, in, the, yeah. in, in our discussion. But think about this. If, if you are in a rough and tumble situation and somebody hits you too hard, you know what that feels like. So you're not going to hit, in general, hit somebody else too hard because you know what it feels like. And that's sort of, there, that's the roots, for example, of an empathic response. And hmm. the thing, the murder, mur- none of the murderers I studied engaged in normal rough-and-tumble play. Hmm. Absolutely none. And it, it, and if you extrapolate the rough-and-tumble play uh, backwards into uh, animals, they also appear to need it to be able to properly find their place in the troop or the tribe or the pack and, uh, and develop uh, social reality to meet their needs. So even so your in son, this, your yeah. son sounds like he's doing what's pretty normal stuff, and I think there has to be uh, reasonable uh, protection by adults, but not the kind of uh, helicopter parent hovering over yeah. the situation, which prevents the spontaneity from occurring and the kids from solving their own problems that are age age appropriate for them. I, th- I think that's really interesting that even what looks like mm, potentially violent play or, you know, can look dangerous it is also a source of learning about empathy um, and boundaries, I guess. Sure. <sighs> well, they're, they're imposed. And, and most mm-hmm. kids who have, who have had a n- not too toxic or sadistic bully in their midst will gang up on the bully and take care of them. Mm. And the bully learns. If the bully spends too much time not experiencing uh, normal rough-and-tumble play, or if the taboos of violence are broken again and again in the home of the bully, then the bully's got to be removed from the play situation or they will 
you know, upset and upend the, the whole playground. But uh, in general, the kids solve their own problems, and that's one of the most important things they learn about themselves. Hmm. They learn whether they're strong or not so strong, fast or cagey, verbal or nonverbal, imaginative or uh, something else, and you learn that generally uh, on the way up sequentially uh, throughout your childhood. Hmm. And in our culture, I mean... Um, there's also this, in some of what you write and the other people you're in conversation with, you make a distinction between play and contest or competition. Mm -hmm. Although I think in our culture, the two often get, become almost indistinguishable or they get, they become entangled. Um, and maybe adults even impose that on children's play. Yeah, this is a, this is certainly a sticky wicket. Uh, but in trying to sort of organize my thinking about competition and contest, mm-hmm. uh, this is where I go back to what what appears to occur in nature and what appears to be kind of a natural process developmentally in those children who appear to be having a very normal background in play without too much imposition of cultural uh, pressures uh, on the part of the culture of the parents. And what one sees in general is a natural emergence of competitive activity, and by that testing, I mean testing one skill against the skill of another, right. without the necessity of domination. And so that that quality of competition appears to be pretty universal uh, in cliques in girls and in uh, sometimes kind of physical prowess in boys and, and now in both genders also. Whereas contest, I think, is requires a winner, often has a exclusionary quality to it, and is not what you see in animal play in the high primates in nature. You really? See, yeah. You'll oh. see uh, handicapping that occurs spontaneously in nature in which the stronger uh, person allows or handicaps the weaker individual so that the play can continue. If there's a chase, the, the often the chaser becomes a chasee. There isn't chasing somebody down and then putting him down. So those are sort of that's sort of the natural history of play in the wild. Now, uh, and I think there it is possible for a wise coach or a, a, a seasoned parent to deal with a competition in, let's say, in your son's age, for example, age nine where uh, mutual participation, love of the game, personal best, mm-hmm. uh, there are ways of dealing with this. And the National Institute for Play has an affiliate uh, that's, that's gifted at this in the Colorado Front Range, a, a gifted volunteer coach by the name of Gary Avicius, who has uh, developed a, a whole uh, curriculum which is, assists both parents and coaches to keep this volunteer sports going without it being super contest at the at particularly at the younger ages. Right. I think you made a you make a very interesting and intriguing point about the scientists themselves who you have interacted with over the years, Jane Goodall in Africa, mm-hmm. um you mentioned uh, Bob Fagan, um you mentioned some others, um, Mark Beckoff, Irenaeus Eibelsfeld. These are all people who uh, study play in animals. And you've written 
I believe their immersion in wild play or natural play has altered them. Say some more about that. Well, I, you know, I know uh, particularly Jane, Mark, and Bob very well. Uh, and Jane certainly was altered by the prolonged exposure and the slow habituation of the chimpanzees in Gambi when she was, uh, you know, what some people the National, National Geographic called Eve in Eden, mm-hmm. but uh, where she saw and, and took in, in particular, the mother-infant play of champ- chimpanzees and has written uh, some beautiful, uh, beautiful scientific essays about this and about the qualities that are induced. And when one talks to her about this, she takes on kind of a... Uh, I won't call it ethereal, but it's sort of a knowingness that this is something in nature that's beautiful and appropriate and can be incorporated in its own language for humans. And then I go to Bob Fagan, who's with the bears in the wild for years and years and and steeped in, and I've been with him in in, uh, Alaska up in a tree hour after hour watching bear play. And Bob has a kind of a spiritual aesthetic about play that permeates his life. And I, I think, you know, I've never really tested this in any way because mm-hmm. uh, it would have been inappropriate. But I think that there's a certain quality of optimism and compassion that has occurred through the system- systematic observation of play over a lifetime. Certainly it's that case, that's the case with Mark Beckoff, whose writings on animal ethics and uh, and human ethics and the, and the origins of morality stem from his long exposure in the wild to coyote play and, and other animals at play. So I've been very impressed that, uh, that by immersing oneself in the study of play, there is a certain either permission or osmosis that occurs that's, that's good for us. Mm-hmm. And this connection of play with spirituality, ethics, morality, those are words you've just used. You also have been, it seems at one point, were very formed by the work of Joseph Campbell. Could you say something about how that, your sense of that connection has evolved for you, both as a scholar and sort of in life? Well, I'll put it in in perspective if I can, because Mm -hmm. it's a fairly complex personal story. But in short, about five or six years after the Whitman episode, uh, I felt that I was beginning to lose some of the linkages that make it made it made sense. So I got a fellowship and went back to Harvard with the man who'd been my boss at uh, Baylor and had a uh, fellowship there with no, no required uh, chores. And so I was simultaneously writing up and dealing with the origins of violence and dealing with Whitman and at the same time reading all of uh, the major works of Joseph Campbell. And what I felt from the encounter with Campbell then was a freedom from the literalness, literalness, literalness that yeah. my biblical heritage and Wheaton heritage had uh, taught me, and a freedom to feel more uh, the sort of the commonality of all religious strivings of all mankind and humankind through the ages and the art. And the stories and the historic uh, perspectives of Campbell's scholarship really spoke to me. So I felt that was something very important. And then while I was looking at Whitman simultaneously, it became evident to me that 
Whitman had lost what little control he had over his impulses as he lost his Catholicism. Hmm. And that his that although he didn't have an internalized conscience structure that was very distinct, as long as he had the rituals and the and the belief and the practice of the church, he seemed to be able to be part of a community. Yeah. But he got disillusioned with that both in the service and I think through the violence of his father. And then is when he appeared to fragment in his diaries and elsewhere. So I began to link the importance of a believed mythology, whether one calls uh, their spiritual belief a myth or not. I'm not trying to insult anybody, Mm -hmm. but I think it's a way of describing a deep belief. A loss of that is a loss of something very, very significant to to be human. Now, segue another 10 or 15 years, and I'm out of out of my clinical practice, and I'm beginning to try and think, well, what's really important to me? And then I started musing about how if your play is not healthy and not intricate, your myth won't be. You'll be enacting your mythic life in a way that's probably got some pathology. So it's pretty important to get play right because play is more basic and more necessary in our development, uh, to my way of thinking, than myth. I mean, it's not that we don't have to have a spiritual basis for our morality and our being, but I hope that well, what puts it you, in some, kind, some kind of perspective for well, you. Anyhow. But give me an example or tell a story about what you mean about when, when you say something like, if, you don't, if we don't get our play right, we don't get our myth right. I mean... Well, okay, if you are... If you think about what play produces, and I've given you a few things like empathy and trust... Mm-hmm. But you watch what you mentioned about your nine-year-old son dealing with fantasy and the internalization of his narratives, his, his own story about making sense of the world. What play does for kids is internalize these narratives that are their own private storytelling to make, make the world make sense, which is a fragment, fragmentary myth. You know, the, it's, a, it's a belief system that the kid... Uh, operates under. I mean, I've got a bunch of grandchildren, and I love listening to them struggle to make sense of their world. Right. If you just sort of listen, you hear this. Well, to me, uh, if they've had abuse or deprivation or media saturation that is uh, violent or, 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 you know, pa- highly pathological experiences in their play experience, then their internal narratives are not going to be very balanced. They're not going to have a means of making sense of themselves or the world. Okay. And when they don't, I think they're uh, at a disadvantage when they then embrace a religion. That's kind of a personalized view. I mean, okay. Pretty... Mm-hmm. Can, can you, uh, does that make sense to yeah, you? Yeah, it does, and I think we'll keep teasing it out. Um, I want to name something that, so you talked about, as scientists, and I, I'm sensing this applies to you too, that the more you expose yourself to play, that it affects you, it changes you. And I, to me, um, be, one of the most wonderful gifts of becoming a parent is uh, that I get a second chance to be playful. You bet. <laughs> and I actually think I wasn't so good at it as a child, and I'm, you know, I mean, but mm-hmm. I think I have a richer play life sort of with, in watching my children, I am more joyful in a way, even vicariously with, with them, and that that's, that's an amazing second chance. Well, they're the professionals, we're not. Right. They're, they're, they're <laughs> the ones who are, who are purer in their play than we as adults are. 
So you're right on. And, you know, being a grandparent, you get a third chance. Yeah. But it awakens. I do, I do become aware that it awakens something in me, right, that is sure. also part of being human. And it, is, it enriches me to be exposed to that, for that to be part of my life again. Well, it's relearning the languages that are fundamental to play, which are largely nonverbal and emotional and, and really fairly specific. When you relearn those languages, just like the mother uh, looking at her smiling child, you get a spontaneous burst of pleasure, mm-hmm. and that, that's pretty important. There's a lot of concern right now, and I know you've been quoted. You were quoted in a, in a New York Times article. Um, like, what was the title of that? Uh, something about... Uh, putting the skinned knees back in playtime about how in our culture um you know as as you and I discussed a bit we there's there's a tendency to clamp down on what looks too wild or dangerous um, for sure yeah it from your from what you know and what you study and your sense of what play means in human life what's your what's your take on that and how it's affecting well, this us. is a, this is a tough one because I don't want to foster, uh, you know, broken bones and 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 concussions and that sort of thing in kids. But an inherent part of being playful is taking risk. Mm-hmm. What you don't want to do is is have the risks be excessive. And the the natural history of play in the world, both animal and human, is that. Persistent play increases the risk of death and damage while it's taking place, but it appears to be absolutely necessary for the well-being and, say, future of the species. So it is a, it's a conundrum, but it definitely, uh, to remove risk, all risk from uh, kids' play is to not allow them, the spontaneity from within, to develop themselves. So it's a, it's a judgment call on the part of parents. Mm-hmm. And I think this is where I have some some beef with the media in that I think if it bleeds, it leads. Uh, the perceptions of the levels of violence and risk in our culture are really beyond what the actual risks are, so that a, a responsible parent feels they can't let their kid be out on the streets in right. the afternoon and that sort of thing. Right, and what I kind of hear you saying, I mean, here's, here was a, here's a quote from Jane, something Jane Goodall said, and play teaches, <clears throat> play teaches young animals what they can and cannot do at a time when they're relatively free from the survival pressures of adult life. But I feel like we are so obsessed, and I'm you know, speaking for myself as well, with our children's safety and so fearful um, that they all, they don't get that freedom, our children. Very true, <laughs> and I th- I think this is there are some heartening playground movements both in Europe and in the U.S. where the playgrounds are going to be not so sterile mm-hmm. and allow. I mean, the fact that there are no teeter totters and uh, most of the swings don't really go very far, et cetera, et cetera, and the monkey bars can only be three feet high. Uh, you know, there, it's reasonable to have safe playgrounds, but it's also reasonable to have challenging playgrounds. And I think the balance, t- to develop that balance, is a skill that's now becoming uh, part of architectural uh, schools. And I know uh, there are some corporate interests in Europe that are trying to develop multi-ethnic playgrounds so that uh, some of the ethnic tensions will be uh, dealt with in a playground way when the kids are small. Hmm. I mean, I, I kind of hear you putting a point on this, though, and saying it's not, you know, that we're keeping their bodies safe and endangering their souls if we 
if we don't let them take some risks and be more playful. <laughs> no question about it. And, and I think uh, uh, I think the the uh, I think it's it's safer for the person who is a player to take a few hard knocks and maybe have a a, a fracture in childhood than it is to insulate them from the possibility of that. I think that that it, that constricts their psyches and their futures much more. Hmm. You've even said that play rewards and directs the living of life in accord with innate talents. How does how yes, does, I have. How does that work? How do you see that? Well, I could ask you as a parent uh, and any other parent that's listening with a, with a, a young child, you mm-hmm. know, say a child over three but under twelve, and if you just observe them and don't try and direct them and watch what it is they like to do in play and get some sense of how their temperament intermixes with their play desires, you often will see a key to their innate talents. And if those talents are given fairly free reign, and this I've done through a lot of clinical study of the histories of people, who you know some of whom have played and some of who haven't, if you allow those innate talents to build upon themselves and the environment is favorable enough so that it supports that, then the sense of empowerment and freedom, such as a premier musician or a, you know or a, a, a prime athlete that's in, that's joyful in their athleticism, or and 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 or you know the writer who's imaginative and and full of uh, J.K. Rowling. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think that, that then you see that there is a union between self and talent and that this is uh, nature's way of sort of saying this is who you are and what you are. Mm. And I'm sure if you, I'm not sure, but I'm reasonably sure if you go back and think about both of your children or yourself and, and go back to your earliest emotion-laden visual and visceral memories of what really gave you joy you'll have some sense of what was natural for you and where your talents lie. Hmm. And so that's why I write that. Hmm. I think it's pretty pretty important. Yeah. Do you... Um, I, th- I think it's fashionable to say that media is ruining our children and they watch too much TV and video games are ruining them. And, and certainly... Uh, you know, I think one one effect of keeping our children safe indoors is that we kind of we kind of make them captive to technology. That can be one effect. But I will say that um, as I look at some of the computer and Internet-based games that my children discover, some of them are incredibly interactive, and there's a lot of imagination. I mean, is some of that okay? (laughs) Oh, sure. Well, of course. I mean, the research is not very good, uh, in my view. On the effects, it is pretty good on the effects of violent TV, for example, right. prolonged exposure to violent TV. But, but the research on video games, particularly if they're if it's kind of non-addictive video game use, is not very solid. And I think there is evidence that a limited amount, by limited, I don't you know I don't know exactly that I could give you a figure on that, mm-hmm. but a limited amount of video games probably increases imaginativeness and skills, and the newly designed video games that incorporate movement 
are likely to be much more savory for the body and mind than, let's say, one that's strictly two-dimensional screen in your thumbs on a, on a gadget. Mm-hmm. Is, um, is the involvement of the body generally really important in terms of the positive effects that you've noted in play in animals and people? Absolutely. I'm glad you asked the question. Uh, part of the brain called the cerebellum, at least when I went to medical school, was was thought to just help coordinate eye movement and body balance, and, and there were tests that one made neurologically to see if the cerebellum is intact. Now with uh, refined imaging techniques, we see that three-dimensional movement in space with some gravitational G-forces that are a part of that stimulates the cerebellum. There are connections between the cerebellum and the prefrontal cortex that get lit up by three-dimensional movement. And there's every evidence that movement uh, accelerates learning. And uh, it, there, this is not this is in its infancy, but there's enough evidence for this that this is these are parts of of studies that the National Institute for Play is is attempting to organize because it uh, seems to be very important. And to take this a step further, there are uh, other brain imaging studies that show that the brain responds differently to a two-dimensional image, let's say a hand grasping a ball that's on a photograph. Mm-hmm then from an actual hand grasping a ball in the presence of the onlooker. And the actual hand and ball open up many more associational areas of the brain, and therefore the assumption is to more uh, rich integration of that image than the two-dimensional image, and that that's a fundamental part of our biological design that we're stuck with because it's been around for a few million years. Okay. I mean, I'm struck that we're we're having this very serious conversation about play. <laughs> well, this is serious, you know. <laughs> we don't want to have any mischief happening on this program. <laughs> That's right. I mean, does, tell me how this research and this immersion that you have in play as a study, how does it change your experience of this part of life? How does well, it change it gives, you? Well, I, I give myself over at least three or four hours a day to what, for an old guy, is spontaneous free play. It, it, you know, it could be reading or what I would call as extremely uh, low-quality rogue tennis, uh, <laughs> hiking, yeah. playing with grandchildren. But, I, you know, I, if a day goes by and I haven't at this age uh, had some sense of timelessness and freedom and purposelessness... Uh, I'll probably be kind of ratty by supper time. But boy, cultivating um, an appreciation for timelessness and purposelessness, mm-hmm. I mean, that's work in our culture. Shouldn't be. Should, should be a part of our, our you, you know, you, you attenuate recess, cut down recess, and kids are learning that what's important is academic performance, mm-hmm. whereas it probably... Uh, equal amounts, if not more, being learned on the playground at recess. So, you know, that's, that's t- that most kids are outside of time when they're on the playground at recess if it's free play. Say more about that, what you mean, outside of time. I mean, that's such an evocative phrase. Well, uh, if uh, one were to take get a replay of Michael Jordan in uh, one of the final games of NBA championship, and see him uh, zoning down the floor 
uh, doing some moves he's never done before and tossing the ball up for a basket. I doubt if at that time he has really conscious that the buzzer's about to go or that I think he's outside of time. Hmm. And I can certainly give you from my own life uh, recollections of that sensation. Uh, just, let's say, last week I was in a nice uh, musical concert that was being held in Monterey, and, you know, I got lost in the music and hmm. had the feeling of, uh, you know, sort of an oceanic feeling of not being there. And it wasn't something I expected to happen but it was it was uh, pleasurable and it was in watching a grandson of mine on the floor with his stuffed animal talking to it mm. uh, timeless they're mm. not in a uh, and it's different for for lots of us but I think that that's a you know a play state of being that's that's an important sense of priority that you don't try and struggle toward, but you try and sort of let it happen to yourself from within what works for you. Hmm. You did mention reading, and I, 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 don't, I don't know if, I would, if, if reading would um, fall into a definition of play, but it is something for me that's very pleasurable and, and transports me to a timeless place. Is, is, does reading count for you? Oh, of course, yeah. very much so, and I share that, uh, that same... Uh, weakness. <laughs> <laughs> and um, so, you know, when, when you talk about timelessness, that does have spiritual resonance. Um, you know, how, how do you think about the spirituality of play? That's, or maybe you would put other words on it. But Well, I don't know that I have a, a crisp way of thinking about it. I can give you a private experience that was, to me, a spiritual experience. Mm -hmm. When I was working with the National Geographic and ha was able, privileged to spend time with play researchers in Africa, I do vividly remember one morning when I was watching a pride of lions and two sub-adult female lionesses got up uh, looked at each other, and there's a picture of these in the National Geographic magazine, what looked from a distance kind of like a fight, but it was a ballet. And <laughs> while I was watching this, I was overwhelmed by the feeling that this is, I'm almost uh, brought to tears talking about it now, that this is divine. There's something divine going on here that transcends their carnivorousness and, and the, you know, red and tooth and claw and the rest of it. Now, that's my projection onto it, but it still was very meaningful to me. Hmm. So that, and I think seeing uh, uh, a young child uh, in, just immersed in play and watching them closely is a is a spiritual experience, and there is spirit emerging in play, hmm. uh, something non-material that's, that's a part of it that uh, at least it, it's hard for me to define it as, as, uh, as, as just uh, ions zipping around in a nervous system. Right. And, I mean, if you are a religious person, I mean, do, how, do you have a different image of God because of this? Yes, well, I do. What does it do to your image of God to be a, uh, a lover I of think, play? Well, I think, you know, I've got, since I'm one foot is always stuck in science, I have some sense that this is God's way of evolving, uh, of things evolving in our biological universe, that some of the driving force behind change 
uh, is embodied in these, this, this emergent property, this self-organizing system that tends to captivate the nervous system and the behavior of humans, but that I call play. And that, for me, expands and kind of gives me a sense of uh, unity with time and space and permanence and even the galaxies, which are also self-organizing and emergent. That's a very pleasant way for God to organize self-organization. <laughs> well, there's also violence, and there are a few other things one sees that that uh, I don't want to be uh, you know, Pollyannish about it, yeah. because I've certainly seen the world in... And it's, uh, you can't, as a psychiatrist or a studier of violence, not see the other side, which mm-hmm. I've seen too. Mm-hmm. But, but, the, but this is part of the, the big picture. This sure is. is also part of the big picture. I mean, we get a lot of publicity of that other, of the, <laughs> of the violence, <laughs> right? I'll say. I'll say we do. And it's there. It's real. There's no, yeah. no uh, shrinking from it. Mm-hmm. What... Um, what would you like to talk about? What have I not asked you about that animates you in this, that you want to share with people? Well, I think the uh, the sense that uh, if you're living a life without it, yeah, your life can go on okay. It's uh, You're going to survive. You're not going to die if you don't Without play. it, with play, right. Without, without play. play. Mm-hmm. But... Uh, it's kind of an endurance contest or uh, the sort of the, the joy of living is lessened if one doesn't play. And in particular, if parents are tense and over-organizing their kids with the hope they'll succeed, get into Princeton, uh, make a lot of money, so that they insist at every moment be play dates or soccer or ballet or gymnastics or, you know, music here, that some of the essence of life is being missed. Mm-hmm. And that's one thing and that's important to me. And probably the other thing that we haven't talked about but which has really struck me since I've been a student of play is looking at the biological design of being human. And when you look closely at that, uh, I'll give you an analogy. Uh, A Labrador retriever plays through its lifetime and and dies a child. Hmm. A wolf wolf sort of gives up childish things, double scent marks, has alpha alpha behavior, uh, governs its reproduction, and is a very successful animal if it isn't killed off by humans, but doesn't play much. There is a fixed kind of property that the wolf has. Now, if you look at our primate heritage, chimpanzees, bonobos, orangutans, mountain gorillas, uh, our closest relatives by DNA, they all have a more fixed kind of wolf-like adulthood. But if you look at the human and look at our nervous systems and our what I would call our physiognomy, the way we look and the way we're designed, right. we really are designed to retain immature, playful-like attributes throughout our life cycle. That's a fundamental part of our design. We know that human beings are now capable of neurogenesis, of new neural development throughout the lifetime, whereas most other creatures cannot. So that that's a design part of being human. Now, take that into policy matters. Mm -hmm. Uh, 
do we parent that way? Do we teach our kids in school that way? Do we take advantage of the design? Do we also see that there are are hazards? The permanent adolescence of the human being means we may be subject to irrational, impulsive behavior. Maybe our laws and our institutions should help reflect that a bit more. If we don't play, what are the consequences? We're more reptilian. We're we're hmm. more savage. We're more we we lack some of those features that I've mentioned earlier in the program. So these are things that I think have are embedded in good science, but haven't yet made it into mainstream science or mainstream policy. And that's why I established the National Institute for Play, was to try and bring some of these concepts together and bring some experts together who are much more reliable scientists than am I, so we can... uh, test this out and begin to see if public policy in terms of personal relationships and health and education and parenting uh, and even corporate leadership can begin to uh, embrace play more and benefit from it. So that's that's my uh, soapbox. I, th- I think that in making a connection between play and maturity and wisdom, because, you know, that's something I hear, you're, you're affirming, I think, one of the most surprising experiences I've had of enjoying growing older, you know, sort of heading mm-hmm. into the latter part of my 40s, um, mm-hmm. which is that I actually think I am enjoying life more and relaxing. And, Good for you. And, and, and throwing myself into play in a way that I didn't when I was younger and, you know, accomplishing things. Um, hopefully I'm well, still you're, accomplishing you're gain, things, but I'm not. Was, <laughs> Sorry, what? You've gained wisdom earlier than most of us. I certainly was a workaholic doctor for too long in my life. Right, but I mean, that is the model in our culture of what being mature is. I mean, being mature is being that wolf. It's leaving behind that Labrador behavior. I mean, clearly, I know what you're saying. There's a line between being a permanent adolescent and being a playful, mature human being. But um, I I, I think you're right that our culture doesn't know how to talk about that playfulness as wisdom. There is a there is a kind of a paradox in it. It doesn't mean we should be irresponsible. Mm-hmm. Just the just the opposite. By having empathy, I think one and trust one and and uh, compassion, which I think are byproducts of of the playful life, because you got a little left over. Uh, it doesn't mean that you're just going to go off and do whatever you want hedonistically. There are boundaries that are certainly part of right. uh, part of play. But it doesn't mean you have to be uh, grouch or uh, serious all the time. I mean, look at Reagan and Gorbachev at a at a at their missile uh, at the salt missile here uh, talks in Iceland. <laughs> they broke down completely until the morning they were to leave. Uh, Reagan had said, "Let's let's have breakfast together," and he went in, started telling dirty jokes, and then. Gorby started telling dirty jokes. They reorganized the conference and they got the the missile. Uh, situation taken care of. That's hard to so, turn into a paradigm, though. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I know. I don't expect us to do that with uh, the Iranians at the moment. <laughs> yeah. Um, I'm just, I mean, I just, I think this is important. I mean, I remember being, so So here's here's a question I would ask, you know, what advice you would give people if they want to recover this as a healthy, wise aspect of being human. I remember being at a at a retreat once. Um, I think it was a spiritual retreat, very serious. And I remember um, some people saying how one of the things they were working at at this point in their life was 
was playing more. And something about the way they said it, about what hard work it was, made it feel like a doomed <laughs> enterprise. Well, <laughs> and, it you doesn't know, sound like... <laughs> and and, then, and um, I worry a little bit. We <clears throat> now kind of rediscover we're having this conversation about our children, but are we going to make them work so hard at playing <laughs> that, we, that we ruin it for them? So, I mean, what advice would you give people in, about recovering this as a healthy part of our lives, if it's something that we've lost and that our culture really, really works against uh, for us. I, I think recovering it depends a little on how much of it you had as a kid and you can bring back an adult form into your current contemporary life. You know, I take a lot of uh, reviews of play of, of varieties of people. And when I come across somebody who really has had an abusive childhood and they say, well, I've never really played, I've never felt free to play, it's not that they've lost it, they feel they've never had it. Yeah. Well, then you, then you start with things like rhythm and movement and those things that intrinsically produce uh, some sense of pleasure and joyfulness uh, and often, uh, you know, just... Well, as Bob Fagan says, movement fills an empty heart. Like um, movement, dancing, or sports, dancing, or anything? Yeah, da- dancing, but things that are conflict-free, but that you can kind of do, that produce a sense of some of the things I've talked about, a sense of pleasure, of taking you out of the urgency of time, that mm-hmm. uh, work for you, whether it's reading or dancing or hiking or mm-hmm. conversation in a, in a pub or what, you know, there's lots of different ways. But I think it's important to find those things that work for you and to then, uh, as Campbell said, then follow your bliss. Mm-hmm. Find your bliss and follow it. But the bliss is usually uh, retrievable. It's kind of like you have to reach for it and pull it out you know, f- from within your memory. But reach into visual images and emotional images that are that, re- that produce a sense of pleasure for you and then build on them. And mm. that usually helps in the recovery. And it, it's not something that happens overnight. It's a, you know, it's, it's a, a slow but enjoyable process. <laughs> it, it, <laughs> something to look forward that, to. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I think that's helpful. I want to ask um, my producers behind the glass if they have any questions. So I'm going to be quiet for a minute while I'm listening to them. Okay. 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 Okay, that's great. Okay, I've got some good questions. <clears throat> good. Um, you talked about, you gave an example of multi-ethnic playgrounds as one kind of innovative idea that's coming along. I wonder um, 
you know, you make connections in your work between the absence of play and problems that we talk a lot about, larger social ills, especially around children, um, but not just children, depression, ADHD, obesity. Um, mm-hmm. Do you see other initiatives coming along that, that, that use these scientific insights into play also in addressing some of those big problems? Yes, I do. I, I think there is some legislation pending. I don't have the uh, HR and the Senate bills in front of me, but they are to mandate 60 minutes of physical exercise per day for elementary school kids, largely as a means of combating obesity. Mm-hmm. And they haven't, as far as I know, specified that during those 60 minutes that that activity should be playful. But in my view, it's not not going to stick if it's work. And if it's if it's if it's laps around the track and push-ups, uh, forget it. The kids are going to f- look on that as punishment. If it's on the other hand, uh, highly intricate games that they can involve themselves in and that are physical, then then that appears to me, my way of thinking of being a, a favorable way to deal with the epidemic of obesity. Hmm. So the the, uh, the question of ADHD. There's a tough one because certainly as a psychiatrist who had some training in in child and adolescent psychiatry, at the end of the spectrum of ADHD are some pretty clear, serious organic problems that probably are best treated with organic means, meaning pharmacologic means, which uh, the diagnostic criteria are specific and, and rare. At the other end of the spectrum is an exuberant, 11-year-old boy who can't sit still in class who, if you give Ritalin to that boy, ceases to play, but he's more calm. He's calmer. And uh, one of our advisors to the National Institute for Play, Jacques Panksepp, who now is in Pullman, Washington, has done some remarkable studies both in animals and a limited amount in, uh, in, in human kids with ADHD where vigorous play is being matched uh, for similar kinds of ADHD against uh, the use of pharmacologic agents with the, the expectation or the hope that there'll be a positive outcome from those who are engaged in vigorous play because the hypothesis is they'll continue to learn through play, whereas the kids who are medicated are not going to take advantage of, of as much of the positive benefits that play, all, play allows. So, mm-hmm. hmm. so, you know, that that's kind of a riff on... ADHD mm-hmm. and play. Um, you mentioned, I, I think it's a good point of so logical and yet something we might miss when we try to legislate these things, that if we try to force uh, physical activity as a, as a, to address obesity, it won't work, but if it's play, it might. Um, this also reminds me of a big paradox that's quite visible in our culture right now as we speak we celebrate professional athletes, um, you know, people whose bodies are um, in peak condition and who entertain uh, and uh, achieve with their bodies. And yet there's such a big, there's so much controversy right now and scandal also surrounding those athletes not being healthy people, right? And um, I should say how do you, so. Yeah, t- t- how do you look at that and think about what that says about what we've done with play in our culture, or is it a completely different problem? Well, 
I don't. I, I know a few professional athletes well, but I don't know any of these really celebrated athletes such as Barry Bonds and Gamby and people that are now getting huge amounts of, of press. But I think that the uh, one of the questions I, I asked a man who's a photographer for the National Basketball Association was to please tell me who the most playful, truly playful uh, participants in the National Basketball Association are. Long silence. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and he said, you know, their uh, their lives are so skewed by money and pressures that they're, you know, he could name a few, and I, I don't know them well enough to put them on the air, mm -hmm. give their names on the air now. But he was able to talk about a coach or two who he thought were playful. But I think the, the, the entertainment celebrity component of... Uh, of being a really big dog professional athlete makes it tough for them to stay playful. Mm. I think there are moments of play. I mentioned Michael Jordan earlier. Yeah. He, he's kind of a prototype uh, of being in the zone and enjoying that. And I think uh, I've looked at the life of Ozzie Smith, who was a, who played a lot as a kid before he was a baseball star. But I don't feel real wise about this particular group of individuals because I just haven't done the kind of in-depth uh, examination of them like I have done, let's say, with many, many other populations of individuals. So, yeah. uh, I think you've got a huge point that uh, there are evidence of thuggishness and narcissism and uh, people running roughshod over the law and feeling special. And, you know, you give a 19-year-old $40 million and it's pretty tough <laughs> to stay normal. To stay normal. Yeah. You're out there talking a lot. You've been at the PUSH conference, at the TED conference. How do you find your ideas being received among um, other kinds of leaders and innovators? Whenever I do a one-on-one -on -one for an hour or so, the receipt, I would say, is very positive and life-changing, particularly if I have with me uh, a gifted entertainer, a playful person who, in addition to my kind of cognitive, scientific, pedantic approach, allows the individual to experience some play while we're talking, kind of what you've talked about. You know, here we are talking about it. Well, it's like, what, who would you have with you, or what would be going on? Well, I, I, there's a, I have a good friend and a colleague by the name of Bowen White. Bowen and Patch Adams work together. Bowen is a physician who has found a gift in being a clown, and he's not a, he's not a mawkish clown. He's a clever, intuitive clown. He's written a book called Why Normal Isn't Healthy. And, and when he and I do a, a gig together, as we've done in a variety of corporations, the feedback I get a year later is really positive. It changed my life. I'm not doing the same kind of parenting. I'm spending more time. When I'm just the guy that's been talking, they remember that I've shown them the pictures of the polar bear, wild polar bear and husky playing together, and they remember the Whitman case, but they, they, always, <laughs> they haven't always changed their lives. All right. So... <laughs> So, uh, you know, there's a, I would say I have a mixed, mixed experience with, uh, with single speeches. I pref much prefer to be able to take kind of in depth the way we're doing to some degree here 
with a lot of visual support mm -hmm. to show the story of play, particularly the evolution of play behavior in animals, the evolution of life, and then how this affects you, and how it is very similar in its biology to the whole process of sleep and dreams. Mm. Everybody sleeps and dreams. They're, it's a part of being human. It's a part of the animal world. Well, so is play. Mm. People don't think of it that way. And when I get kind of get the opportunity and personalize it for that individual's own culture and psychological needs, it has uh, usually great great effect and it's uh, accepted. But uh, because there's so much cultural pressure to, that play is trivial and, uh, you know, the higher, you, the more you accomplish, the more grinder you're going to be, the, the better worker you're going to be, yeah. it's, a big, it's a big shift for a lot of people to think of it this way. And reminds me of one other thing. If you yourself in the course of your life have been valued primarily for your performance and your play has been suppressed and you begin to see emotionally at least what you've missed, it's too much. Very often when I'm dealing with a lot of play, people start getting angry. They mm. say, well, you know, mm. what did I say? What did I do? And then you realize, my gosh, I'm beginning to tread on a part of their life. They've been valued only for their performance. They don't have an option. Other than that, you better shut up, Stuart, and let them let them alone. Hmm. So you well, know, that's been a very very common uh, experience, particularly if I'm dealing with extremely high performing executives. <laughs> right. Well, then you're pointing up something where they're not accomplished at all, and that I, I think that's why I asked you the question also about uh -huh. how how people listening might cultivate this in their lives because it's kind of frightening. I think it might be frightening sure at 60 is. to say this is an absolutely essential part of being human that I've paid no attention to and I'm not very good at and don't know how to begin. But, you know, it's different than trying to learn a new language or learning Chinese at 60 because right. Chinese <laughs> isn't embed embedded in you, but play is. Right. So, you know, you gotta, we, you got to leg up on play uh, <laughs> just by being human. Mm, okay. I mean, if somebody said, you got to learn Chinese at my age, I'd, you know, <laughs> I'd look for the nearest cliff, cliff and jump. <laughs> <laughs> um, if I think about um, it, this program, is there music or sound that might accompany this conversation you know, we can't do well, visuals with radio. But. No, I wish you could. Um, well, you know, I've done a number of uh, conferences where before I start, I'll have give everybody a baton and play about five different kinds of music, beginning with Sousa, mm -hmm. polkas, and to some really heavy Mahler, to, to a hard rock, and it's kind of wherever your signature is, find it and, and conduct it and enjoy it. But I don't have a, I don't know your audience well enough to know what you can, you know, there's a lot of joyful music that mm -hmm. I think is, is zippy and playful. Well, we might uh, ask you, um, you uh, Colleen might ask you just to give us some suggestions, even just music you like, music you find joyful. And, okay. and we might be able to use that. So we can do that by email. Um, All right. I think we're... Um, I think we've come to a good place. I, I don't want to ask you just before we finish. Um, when you, we didn't, we skipped over this a bit, but it, it's clearly an important message in what you say that how how much or how one played as a child. I mean, how as you look back now at your childhood, um, what do you see? Uh, I see a very blessed childhood because, uh, particularly, my father's family uh, was full of 
practical jokers, gamers, and uh, it was just a. They were farmers in Nebraska, but they were players first and farmers second. And it was, it, you know, the large, large, raucous, involved family. And then I had with my my older brother and I were fortunate enough to fend, spend full summers with my mother's extended family, whose sisters and brother uh, didn't take her religiosity as seriously as we did at home. So I had an, uh, a playful, I mean, a lot of permission to play. And as I got into this as a, you know, as an avocation, I realized I probably wouldn't be able to do it if I hadn't had that kind of really uh, pretty exuberant, playful background. So I feel very lucky. Hmm. Okay, well, it's been delightful speaking with you. You too. I would like to say one other thing, okay. and that is I, I hope to get all of this into form in a book, and I'm working on that, and I hope we'll get it out. So. Oh, okay. All right. All right, well, we will um, be in touch. You'll, you and Colleen are in touch, and uh, we may have some other good, questions. Kristen. And Thank you so much. Well, I, I hope the program's really workable. Yeah, that's and good, great. Uh, good for the audience. Thank okay. you. All right, bye-bye. Bye-bye.